Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Sweet. Okay. I've got a fun conversation lined up this week that I had with one Jason Hardrath just a few days ago. When Jason was last on the show, he teased a project that involved a volcano, Mexico, spring break, and a whole lot of running and mountaineering. But he didn't really provide any other major clues as to exactly what he had cooked up. Well, earlier this year, Jason, his buddy Nathan Longhurst, and a lean film crew set out to attempt what is affectionately known as an infinity loop on Pico de Orizaba, an 18,000-foot-tall volcano in southern Mexico. Without spoiling anything, my conversation with Jason focuses on the origin of that project and the build-up to it, including how he trained for altitude while living in his van, and how he planned the actual route, recruited sponsors, and everything else that goes into organizing what essentially amounted to an international expedition. Jason and his team are currently spending a ton of time in the edit bay working on a film meant to accompany the project, but I made him promise to come back on the show to talk about it after it drops. So stay tuned for that. And for folks interested in learning more about Jason's background, as well as his excellent film from last year, Journey to 100, links to our previous episodes with him will be in the show notes. But before I bring Jason on, I want to take a quick minute to tell you guys about Blister's partnership with Spot Insurance. Injuries are definitely not the first thing that comes to mind when we think about our favorite outdoor sports. But as many of you know, perhaps all too well in some cases, they happen from time to time. And even if you have standard insurance, the cost of your deductible and often a number of hidden fees means you're likely to get stuck with quite a hefty bill for any trip to the ER or hospital visit. That's where Spot comes in. With a Blister Plus Spot membership, you get injury insurance that covers everything from trail running to backcountry skiing to mountain biking and more. All that in addition to the benefits of being a Blister member. For more info, make sure to click on the link in the show notes. All right. And finally, I also just want to remind you guys to leave us a rating or review after this conversation wraps up. Little things like that really help us to continue to put out new episodes of the podcast each week. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Jason. Jason, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be back. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I feel like last time we talked uh, towards the tail end of our conversation, um, you teased a project you had planned. Uh, You wanted to attempt some insane infinity loop on a volcano in Mexico, and that's kind of all the details you provided. Um, I know you went down to Mexico, but I know nothing else. So I wanted to have you back on the show to kind of tell us that story. Awesome. I'm glad it's so it's so open-ended because I actually went down to Mexico more than once. Um, back in December, uh, end of last year, uh, I went down there just to make a solo attempt, like no big deal, just going to like go down by myself, not not make a, you know any fuss about it, and went to attempt the Infinity Loop on Pico de Orizaba, which is the tallest peak in Mexico and the tallest volcano in North America. So it's one of the volcanic seven summits, um, sort of like the normal seven summits list, except it's specific to volcanoes as the name would indicate. Um, and yeah, so I went down there and during my acclimatization window developed HAPE, um, on day three. And for those that don't know, HAPE is high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, basically, when your body detects, well, a portion of the population, not everybody is prone to hate. And I didn't think I was prior to this trip. I'd given it to myself before um, on Chimborazo in Ecuador, a 20,000 foot peak, but I ascended way too quickly. So it was like, oh, of course I gave myself haste and hate and I was super sick. And it was like, yeah, I deserved it. But this time I was being super cautious and I had no haste symptoms. So no headache, no nausea, um, felt great. And then the high altitude pulmonary edema is caused, as I was saying, when your body detects the low oxygen environment and your uh, SpO2, the oxygen in your your blood volume drops, um, it causes, in a portion of the population, which I'm a part of, it causes uh, intense vasoconstriction within the lungs. And at the same time, the heart rate increases, uh, thereby increasing the blood pressure through the lungs massively. And 
that just sort of starts to cause fluid to accumulate and accumulate and eventually it ruptures through your alveolar sacs and starts flowing into your lungs and you start coughing up this clearish pinkish fluid. And if you sit and you don't cough it up for any amount of time, it starts to feel like you're suffocating and gurgling. Um, and it's not a fun experience. And so, yeah, day three, I develop full on where I'm like coughing fluid up through the night. Um, and it's like, well, this is over. Um, and I've learned something about myself. So as I was sitting up, not able to sleep anyways, through the night, I got a little bit of phone reception and just kind of started researching, um, hate and discovered that you utilizing a vasodilator, um, like Cytophil or Nifedipin during the acclimatization window for those who are prone to HAPE because the vasodilator prevents that feed forward loop from starting, um, can be, can be a really useful, uh, tool in mitigating symptoms. Um, so it's like, okay, cool. I have a new tool to add to my toolkit. Cause I'd known about like Diamox and, um, all that, but it's not specific to HAPE symptoms. It's more for HACE symptoms, um, which has to do more with the brain. And so I just didn't have a tool in my toolkit to, to address the specific physiology of my own body as far as like a risk mitigation um, tool. Um, so yeah, it was a disappointing trip to, you know, blow a plane ticket and all that effort and time to, to go down there and learn a hard lesson. But also it's like, even in the moment I knew it's like, yeah, I'm going to take what I learned here. I'm going to have the right tools with me that instill some confidence that I can, you know, kind of push into this a little bit, even if the symptoms do start to develop a little, um, and I'm going to come back. And so, yeah, it, uh, you know, as is always the, the wise decision when you have a failure, when you're solo the first time I invited a bunch of friends and made a big deal of it. And you know, a film crew came along and it's like, okay, cool. Now if I fail again, it's in front of a big crowd and everyone's going to know. Yeah, no, it was pretty amusing, but some people got really psyched. Uh, Nathan Longhurst, we've uh, shared so many stories together. And I think every time either of us has been on a podcast or had an article written, we've always managed to end up mentioning one another's names just because our, our stories have intertwined that much. Um, we ended up sharing uh, this adventure. He came along and was the other athlete to, to make the attempt with me. A friend of ours, Alden um, Rhino, Alden Grant Rhino, he, uh, he was kind of my man in the chair during the Washington Bulgers push, the guy that I'd call like, hey man, smoke is in the air. Is, any, is anything closed? Um, and so it was super cool to be able to bring him along and he got a summit on Pico de Rezaba and he just had a cool time hanging out on the South side, providing support during the effort. Um, so it was really cool to have him get to be like boots on the ground uh, support on this project. And then Kevin Issa and Hayden Lynch, two great uh, video guys um, came along and helped capture footage on the, on the side and the top of Pico de Arizaba to, to really bring a compelling film. Um, I'm, I'm excited about the film that's going to come out of this. Um, and yeah, so that's in the, in the works right now um, to, to see what kind of a story we can pull out of this crazy experience. I want to talk a little bit about some of the background um, behind the trip, specifically like the origin of the concept of the infinity loop. Cause I know uh, you completed the Mount Rainier, I believe infinity loop. Uh, and that was kind of like the first time I had heard about that style of like mountaineering, but I know it has kind of like a rich history in the States. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so everyone uh, who attempts an infinity loop has listened to the Dirtbag Diaries uh, to infinity podcast episode where Jason Vaughn and Gavin Woody and a host of other people talk about Chad Kellogg's original idea uh, and then them going and establishing the initial, the first ever completion of the Rainier Infinity Loop. And yeah, Chad Kellogg dreamed it up and, and Gavin and, and, and uh, Jason were looking for, for some kind of grand challenge on, on Rainier. And it just sort of this serendipitous um, coincidence happened where they learned about Chad's idea and Chad passed away before he was ever able to attempt it. So it's a little bit of this sort of carrying on his legacy element to it, which for me really makes something special of it that this mountaineer that so many people uh, loved and, and appreciated and respected, like, because he came up with this idea, it's, 
influencing so many people in how they experience mountaineering and ultra endurance on volcanoes. Um, and it is an idea specific to volcanoes. And he always sort of meant it from what, from what I've gathered from his friends and conversations I've had with people in the know. It's like, it was always meant to not just be for Rainier. It was for any freestanding mountain. And of course, a volcano is sort of the freestanding mountain. Um, and so, yeah, I had it back in 2019. Um, I think even on the adventure sport podcast, after I, uh, I had completed it, I chatted, um, with Mason and I even said like back then in 2019, I'm like, Oh, what I want to do next is I want to go. And I want to, I want to go overseas and try this on some bigger volcanoes. Cause I'd already done, uh, Chimborazo at that point. I'd already climbed Pico de Orizaba once at that point. And it was like, this would be super cool on a really big volcano, like insanely hard to have elevation and ultra endurance at the same time. Um, and then COVID broke out. And so it all had to go on the back burner because it's like, well, that's over. Um, and so that built the suspense, right? And that kind of, I don't, being that I'm a very animated adventure driven person, uh, ADHD little kid, I don't, I don't sit with stuff on the back burner. Well, so it's definitely built the suspense and the energy for it. Like, when am I going to have a chance? When am I going to have a chance? And I actually had wanted to attempt it a year ago. Um, but it was like travel restrictions to Mexico were still a little sketchy where it's like, man, if I fly down there and I get stuck, I don't want to lose my job because I took the risk. So, um, it got pushed out to this year. Um, but yeah, definitely built the suspense and it built the energy. It's like, okay, I want to go do this thing. And then it, it gave more time for the idea to percolate. Like originally I just was like, Oh, I want to do Pico de Orizaba cause it's such a beautiful volcano. It's just so, it's so iconically triangular and everything like that. Um, and it has the circumnavigation trail. And so I was just kind of fixated on that one peak, but then as I was kind of reading into it more and kind of trying to give myself context, it's like, well, wait a minute. It's one of, it's the tallest volcano in North America. It's like, well, wait a minute. There's a whole bigger project within this project. Like why not also aim at an infinity loop on each of the volcanic seven summits? Cause it's like, okay, if Chad Kellogg's idea is going to continue to be loved and grown and spread around the world, there is no more global list than the tallest volcano on each continent. Like that's, that's kind of as far and wide as it can go. And it's like, all right, maybe I'm meant to be the guy that, that tries to do this, that tries to like start, you know, even if, even if I only get three or four of them and like I open it up and Russia never becomes a place I can travel again. And Iran, they won't let me in. And, you know, maybe I never have the money as a school teacher to go to Antarctica, but if I open and leave this open-ended project, um, maybe it'll inspire someone to come and eventually finish it. Um, you know, I would love to do it myself. I'd love to see it all the way through, but it's like, I can't control the socio-political affairs, um, in other places, but I can give it a go. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's become this sort of inspiring larger project that, you know, uh, Gavin, Gavin Woody actually reached out to me, uh, as soon as we completed it. And he's like, Hey, I've been following what you're doing, like really respect this. And we actually hopped on a, a zoom chat just the other night and talked through kind of the, the seven, the volcanic seven summits project. And yeah, it was kind of cool to get that nod from someone who's like deeply ingrained in that community with a love for these infinity loops. And it's like this, this tight community, um, been, been Americus. He also reached out to me, um, letting me know he was watching and psyched for, for, for the go on it. And he's the one that bested me on the Rainier infinity loop by 90 minutes. Um, so it's like, there's definitely a whole crew of people that kind of love, love this expression of ultra endurance mixed with the mountaineering on volcanoes. And yeah, so that gives kind of the body and the, the community and the, um, a little bit of the experience to it. Um, what do you like so much about like the infinity loop? Like, I know that's kind of a, a simple question, but like compared to just like ascending a peak and going back down, like, is it the challenge? Is it, is it like the aesthetics of it? Yeah. I mean, my first love was running and, and ultra, and that led to ultra endurance. And then I added during, after my car accident, I added the mountaineering skills in when I couldn't really be an endurance athlete anymore. But then as soon as that first love came back, it was like, well, let's blend these two. And so I always have a drive to like go light and fast. Like, you know, if I'm going to climb glacier peak or something that most people, you know, it's like a 30 mile round trip to go tag that peak. It's like, oh, I'm going to run that in a day. 
like it's not even an option to like I don't even consider being like oh I'm gonna carry a heavy pack with overnight food and and in a tent it's like no like I'm gonna go for an ultra run today and I'm gonna tag that summit um not that there's anything wrong with going slower and carrying the weight it's just I don't know like because I'm able to I enjoy going light and fast or maybe I'm just too wimpy to carry the weight <laughs> no um, I think that like there's like a certain grace to being able to like move light and fast in the mountains like it's just a good feeling it does it feels really special and I love that like and so you get this beautiful experience of moving light and fast and then for me with the ADHD mind that's cluttered and busy with all sorts of thoughts when I get into that technical terrain I get these beautiful quiet focused moments where it's just me and the nuances of the mountain to stay alive and I love that beautiful quiet. And then of course you get to achieve the summit and that feels amazing. And then you come back down um, and you get to have the wonderful run all downhill back out. But I think the reason I love the infinity loop so much, I mean, some of it is a little bit of a romance with the Rainier infinity loop. It was such a huge milestone and transformative experience in my own journey. When I was in the middle of that journey to 100 FKTs, I mean, I would say to to this level that if no Rainier Infinity Loop, then also no Bulgers 100. Like that's how significant of a breakthrough it was. I'd never gone over 100 miles in a race before. I'd never gone two nights without sleep before. I'd never done over 40,000 feet of vert in a single effort before. Uh, it was like so many brand new push throughs all at once stacked on top of each other. And to have come through that thing and, and broken the record and done it solo. And it was just such a transformative experience. I, I would even call it like spiritual experience with myself that I look back at it and it's just like, man, like talk about a beautiful, beautiful challenge where you get to mix your mountain skills, your glacier travel skills, your, your uh, ultra running. You, you get to face deep fatigue and risk management and decision making like facing that second trip over the mountain when you're already pretty deep in the pain cave and the, the finish is still far enough away that you're like, Oh boy, you know, you're, there's no light at the end of the tunnel yet for that second trip over the mountain. Um, it's like, it's like, no, you're just in the middle of the darkness and the suffering. And it's like over a mountain right now in these conditions, um, the conditions inside and the conditions outside. And I don't know, there's something just magical and difficult and challenging and transformative to that experience. And then like aesthetically, like getting to climb over a mountain twice. So you get to experience both sides of the mountain, the full traverse over it twice. Uh, once usually in daylight and once usually at night is usually how the timing works. So you get two very different experiences because a, a mountain, a, a mountain navigating a mountain and traveling a mountain is a very different experience by headlamp versus in full day. Um, you know, one of one of them is a pretty like scary, can be confusing where you're second guessing yourself, you know, at night by headlamp. And then, you know, in the daylight, it's just majesty and awe and views. And you're, it's like you're in a plane at 30,000 feet. It's so two very different experiences. Um, and then you get to see the mountain from like every aspect as you circumnavigate it going each way. And so you get to it, you know, from different angles, it's like some of these volcanoes are have such different personalities. One side looks brutal and difficult and mangled. And another side is, you know, the perfect triangular volcano shape that a little kid would draw if they were to draw you a picture to hang on the fridge. And it's like you get all of that packaged into a single push. And so that for me, I guess, is how I would sum up the the fullness of like, why would I bother to do this? It's like, well, I get to do all of this with a mountain in one push and it's like you know people who backpack around a mountain might take like four or five six days say like rainier uh on the wonderland um and then you know normally they take two or three days to climb the mountain so it's like you've got this week-long experience um that normally people would have to come back you know on multiple trips to accumulate and you get to put all of that into this singular experience and walk away with memories of all of it and that to me is kind of a cool exchange rate. Like, okay, I'm going to show up once and I'm going to get all of these memories in that one go. Like, all right, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it, it's like the satisfaction of having everything in like one bite. Yeah. 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 Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Had anyone attempted uh, an infinity loop on Pico de Orzaba before you? N not that I could find or anyone that I've 
like any any even the Mexican guiding companies um, down there near Pico, uh, like none of them. It was like a whoa, you're doing what? Like that's really yeah. cool. Um, that leads me into my question of like, how did you kind of map like a first time route? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, with my journey to 100, uh, I created probably 40 routes during that um, process. Not all of which I completed a first attempt on, but I think I created about 40 with the intention of doing them. Okay. Um, I think I've created around 60 now. Again, not all of them I've done. Sometimes other people have gone and done them, like after I dreamed it up. Um, but that's given me a lot of practice at like, okay, how do I find all the possible GPX files, all the possible data files, you know, pull some from uh, like, oh yeah, okay, this runner did a portion of it here and that mountaineer did a portion of it there and this rock climber did a portion of it here and then like pulling those into Caltopo and trimming them down and then merging them into a finished file that's like, this should roughly be the most efficient way based on my skill set to complete this project based on the trip reports of these various athletes um, and my understanding of the the terrain and the, the reports I've read. And so I kind of do a lot of reading and I do a lot of compiling and I use Caltopo to build it and merge it all and create a finished file. So that way I can have it both on my watch loaded on my, I have a Vertex 2 that does the you know wrist-based navigation so I don't have to pull out a phone if I don't need to. And then I also have it on my phone. Um, so that way it can be really efficient route finding when you're, when you're out there, if you're kind of, kind of getting the, you know, especially at night, if you feel like, well, am I drifting a little off here? Which way do I need to go down? Um, totally. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's usually my method. Um, and yeah, I, I'll pull from like peak bagger. I'll pull from mountain project. I'll pull from Strava. I'll pull from Caltopo itself. Sometimes people will send me their files. Uh, for example, I got the circumnavigation portion of Pico de Arizaba from Jason Anton and Mike Chambers of Beat Monday because they did that attempt at a summit circumnavigate. Um, they didn't end up successfully summiting because of the bad weather, but they did complete the whole circumnavigation. So they're like, oh yeah, we'll send you our file. Um, so I split that up and built it into the um, file for Pico de Arizaba using the FKT routes for each side of the mountain for the north and south route as the climb over. So it's like, all right, if this is the way the FKT guys who actually live down there in Mexico, um, they probably know this mountain really well. So I think I can trust it. <laughs> yeah. I love doing that like internet sleuthing. Like it's so much fun. Yeah. It's an amazing era. Like uh, I say this all the time. It's like nobody succeeds in a vacuum. It's like everybody's always had to stand on the shoulders of the greats that came before. And the cool part is now we can transfer that data so thoroughly and so quickly that you know, building out a bigger project like this is now possible. Like, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, trying to build out a successful infinity loop for the seven volcanic summits would just have been an insanely slow process. I think, totally. I think in a matter of a week, when I really finally set my mind to it, I built every single volcanic uh, seven summit route. Like I went through and found everything and, and compiled it and built it and figured it out. And it was like, wow, like it took me a week to do something that maybe would have taken years to try to piece together good information on. Um, and so that's pretty well. And again, like I've obviously been around the block with this quite a few times. So right. Maybe not. Maybe I'm underestimating my own skill set in that regard. Um, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> it's no, easy, but like, I, like when I hiked the PCT, I was like, how did people do this without like smartphones, you know? Like, and that is a very kind of straightforward route. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the main artery there. So I know you went down for your first attempt this spring, correct? Well, technically second attempt. Um, but yes, okay. it was, it was spring break since I'm a school teacher, okay. everything still living in the breaks. Yeah. So spring break. Okay. How did you train for that uh, up in Oregon? So you know, it's worth saying that my, my, my health and fitness wasn't where I wanted it to be for, for this project. Um, especially when I initially went in December, I was in a, still in a pretty bad place at that point through the end of summer and fall, I just progressively started to feel worse and worse. And of course you, you build this mindset of like suffering through any sort of condition and situation in the mountains. And right. it just starts to become second nature that when life gets hard, like you just lean into it. Like you don't complain, you don't worry, you just lean in no matter how hard it gets you, you bear the burden and you get it done. And what 
what finally made it click for me is I realized I was out on like a casual 45 minute workout. And by minute 30, I realized I'm in the pain cave. Like I'm in the grit and Barrett mode right now. And this should be easy. And that's what made me go, I need to get checked out. Cause I'm kind of a, uh, throughout, especially all throughout my twenties, I was like, I'm not going to go to the doctor. Like forget right. that. Um, and I'm not going to pay money for that. Uh, and so kind of, kind of learned a hard lesson here in my thirties where it's like, oh yeah, no, actually I need to be paying attention to, to health factors. Um, you know, especially with the training loads I put on myself and the, um, stress loads between working a full-time job and doing all this adventure athlete stuff. And so I finally got some, uh, blood work done with inside tracker. And sure enough, like I had some stuff that was way, way off my magnesium, way, way off my vitamin D way, way off cortisol, way high, like all sorts of stuff, just not where it should be. And it's like, okay, this is probably a big portion of why I feel so terrible. And so I started working to address that. And, you know, my training had been off for a while, so I wasn't as fit as I wanted to be all through the fall and started addressing that. And probably really, it wasn't until February that I was like, Hey, I kind of feel normal. Like I go out for a long workout and I go through the whole thing. And it's like, Hey, wait a minute. That's about what that should have felt like, like cruiser and fun all through the middle. And maybe like the last third or last quarter got pretty real. It's like, all right, that's probably, that's probably appropriate. And so didn't really get in a rhythm with my, my training to a high degree where I would have liked to be um, leading up to this. And so kind of came in with this mindset that it's like, all right, this isn't about establishing some kind of perfect record that's going to be unbeatable. It's like, this is kind of field of dreams kind of stuff here where it's like, if you build it, they will come. And, and, and really a lot of the stuff I've always done all through the journey to 100 was always this intent of like, this gives my life meaning. I want to put it out there so others can find meaning in it too. And so it's like, all right, you know, deeply, my hope is that, you know, these uh, Mexican mountain guides and mountain athletes down there will take ownership of this thing and absolutely crush me because they're on that mountain like every day, um, totally acclimatized to 18,000 feet. Uh, like my hope is they like smash it and it becomes their record that they brag about that they're like, ha, that's slow American. Um, like I would be honored if that was the case. So, so yeah, kind of came into it with this mindset of like, I'm going to go, I'm going to take this crack at being a person who can establish this. I'm going to take this crack at facing my symptomology with hate and succeeding in the face of it. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to take this attempt and see what happens and see whether I can pull it off and, and leave something for other people to test themselves on and, and better the time on. And hopefully it becomes something that's a, a fun conversation piece for them and within this greater FKT culture and community. Um, and so far, it seems like it's been really well received. Definitely some of the, the guides were like, yeah, I might try this. Um, and then also a couple of uh, Mexico City based athletes have caught, caught wind of it and have been messaging back and forth a bit through the language barrier, which is always fun. Um, so, yeah, so, so I'm really I'm, I'm happy with how the the idea and the project of it has has unfolded um, as far as like what I was capable of doing with my training. I focused a lot on vert on steep terrain um, ascending and descending, uh, slopes over a thousand feet per, per mile. Um, spending a lot of time, just time on foot in that steepness of terrain, keeping heart rate low because, uh, obviously trying to move at elevation consistently without breaks. Uh, you don't want to just be launching your heart rate through the roof. Um, so that was my, that was my big focus with training. I spent a lot of nights, about a month worth of nights sleeping in a higher peak altitude tent just to give me a little extra chance, um, which was interesting to build an altitude tent inside the van. Cause I still live in my van. Um, even though I'm a school teacher, it's like, I don't know, it's the way I make a school teacher salary pay for the wild totally. adventures that I go on. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to set the altitude tent up inside the van on the bed. Um, kind of fun, kind of weird. Um, uh, but I think that gave me a little edge that helped a bit too. And yeah, so a lot of foot time on steep vert terrain and sleeping in an altitude tent. Well, probably if I was to pick two, two key components of my training that are outside of just like numbers, um, that's kind of the, what I built my training around and my uh, preparedness around. 
I have never heard of anyone setting up an altitude tent in their vehicle. That's like, that's, that's a game changer, man. So yeah, if anybody listens to this who works for an altitude tent company, I just want to build an altitude tent into a van. Yeah. I think that would be cool. Just, you know, go to go to bed and just set the whole van to be at 15,000 feet. That's yeah. (laughs) Gives a new meaning to van life. Yeah, it'd be Um, a cool luxury item. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about Mexico, man. Like, what was that like? What was the culture like? Like, where'd you go? Uh, did people think you were insane? <laughs> um, people think I'm insane everywhere I go pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. So man, I, I enjoy Mexico city a lot. Um, it seems like a lot of Americans who haven't traveled are always like, Oh my God, are you, did you get attacked? Did you get kidnapped? It's like, Oh, come on. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, have you ever visited Chicago? Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, went, 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 uh, it was a pretty rush trip, right? Cause a one week window, um, since I'm a school teacher, I only get one week off for spring break plus the weekends on either side. So about 10 days. Um, so it's kind of like leave parent teacher conferences at like 7 PM drive through the night to the airport, catch a 1am flight, fly through the night and hit Mexico city, land on the ground in Mexico city at like 8am. Um, 9am and some bags ended up not making the flight and got delayed. So we sat around in the airport for a while and, and waited for that, ate some tacos, delicious, got to know each other. Cause like a lot of us hadn't met each other before, um, especially the film crew guys. Um, so it was fun to kind of like actually get to meet each other after like building this whole idea and, uh, fleshing everything out and then just like, here we go. Um, so it was actually nice to have that time. And then we caught buses through Puebla up to Lachichuca that same day, ate some more tacos, again, delicious. Um, they do the whole thing where it's just like right off the spit. Um, yeah. And the, oh man, the El Pastor, so delicious. Oh man, just, ah, oh. ah, oh, yeah. No, so- I was, I, I was down there a couple of weeks ago for a bachelor party in Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> uh, and we went into town and the tacos, man, like, that's that's a reason to go down there in and of itself. Yeah, for, I would I would go back at some point. I will go back just to eat tacos. Um, yeah, yeah. No, so um, ate so many tacos while I was there, and then uh, because of my multiple trips, I actually developed a little bit of a relationship with this uh, restaurant called King Taco in Lachichuca. Lachichuca is kind of the the main mountain town, like mountain guide hub for Pico de Arizaba. And in Lachichuca, King Taco is the best taco place. And so I'd gone in there a bunch of times during my December trip. And we like through the language barrier again, kind of like laughed and joked back and forth. And, uh, you know, they apparently do some like competitions where they actually win, you know, like best taco or whatever. Um, they like were showing me some videos on their phone. Um, and they were joking about their, the bo- their boss, the main guy doing the cooking and the cutting. Um, and how he, um, apparently used to be when he was younger, a stud athlete. And so, you know, the thing they started doing is like flexing their muscles, yeah. like pointing at him and flexing like, oh yeah, he's, he's strong, he's strong. Um, and so we would laugh back and forth and it was super fun to walk in for the first time. And one of the guys behind the counter looks and sees me and immediately does the flexed arm and points at him. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> um, so kind of fun to have like developed a relationship with this cool little establishment, King Taco and the people there and to be remembered. Um, that felt pretty good. That felt pretty cool to, to feel a little connected in a real way with the place rather than just passing through. Um, yeah. So, so I'd say that as far as like a cool cultural experience, that's, that's a big part of it. And, uh, one that stands out in my mind, um, roof dogs. That's another thing that pops to my mind. Uh, that's like everywhere you go, there's these dogs barking at you on the roofs of these little, you know, like, uh, cinder block, uh, houses and cinder block, uh, what do you want to call them? I don't know, compounds for lack of a better term. Um, and that's kind of a fun vibe, a weird energy, like, oh, dogs everywhere. Um, so those things stand out in my mind and Lachichuca's just got a cool, relaxed vibe to it. Um, they got a, a little square with a church and, um, a sign like one of those colorful lettered signs that are like larger, you know, the letters are as big as you are um, that when you stop and look at it and line it up, you get the mountain right above it in the background. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, perfect. Um, Instagram. Uh, 
So yeah, no, it's, it's a good vibe. It's a good time. Um, were you at all apprehensive about having like one, a partner with you and two, like a film crew? Cause I feel like trying to organize all that stuff at like, you know, 18,000 feet has got to be quite challenging. Oh yeah. It was, um, it was a lot. I mean, let me shout out Kevin, Kevin Issa. Um, you know, you can find him on YouTube. You can find him, um, on Instagram. The cool part about this is right. You know, most production companies, it's like either they're getting, they're getting fully paid or they're not coming. And Kevin and I like had started interacting actually about the Rockies Grand Slam project that I want to attempt this summer, um, climbing the Montana 12ers, the Wyoming 13ers and the Colorado 14ers. And we chatted about that. And he's like, well, what are you getting up to before then? I was like, well, I'm going to head down to Mexico and try this uh, infinity loop on Pico de Riazaba. He's like, you're going to do what? Um, and he got really psyched on it. And it's like, we, you know, we tried kind of last minute. It was like a month or two, month and a half uh, away from when it was time to go. We tried pitching a few uh, brands that I have relationships with to see if they could fund a full production. Obviously, of course, nobody would with a month, month and a half notice. Um, but got a, a, a couple of brands to pitch some smaller uh, chunks of change to at least cover his flight and Hayden's flight, his uh, second camera. And uh, enough to like get us a like Airbnb for them to have their camera equipment at. So just like super basics. And he's still like, yeah, I really believe in this project. I really believe in in you and what you're what you're working for. Like I'm gonna do it. Like we'll we'll figure it out on the tail end how to make it like pay the bills, so to speak. And I'm like, that's exactly the kind of human I want to work with. Like someone that can be so passionate and believe in a project so much that they're willing to be all in, even when there's a bunch of unknowns left in the air. It's like, that's how I like the whole journey to 100 project, the whole me being a person worth talking to on a podcast, like all of that is built on this philosophy of if I believe in something and I think it's possible, I'm going to build the plane when it's in the air and I'm going to go for it. And so to find another human being who's a creative uh, in the you know camera and film domain uh, that kind of approaches his practice the same way I've, appra- I've approached my creations in the mountain domain. It's like, yeah, we should work together. This is going to be great. Um, so we like launched into it and we had a lot of stuff on the front end. We'd sort of figured out roughly like using the Caltopo map again, like, all right, if somebody's stationed here, they can drone this low and this high and then get, you know, camera shots here and there, you know, one person up on the summit. Cause that's obviously key. Um, so we kind of figured out wh- where people were going to be at different points and then we were going to want to go drive to different parts of the mountain um, to kind of check the route anyways, to make sure you wouldn't take any wrong turns at key intersections. And so it's like, all right, cool. We can do some pre-filming in those locations when we're acclimatizing and, and scouting anyways. And so we just came up with this whole cohesive plan for how everything would flow and when we would get interviewed up, interviews done. Um, and then, yeah, so once it was boots on the ground, it wasn't like we were trying to figure it out on the fly in the moment it was kind of pretty well established. Obviously we had to make adjustments on the fly. Um, but with someone who's passionate about their work and believes in a project, that's a lot easier than with someone that's like, I'm only doing this because I'm getting a paycheck. Um, and so, yeah, it was it a lot more stressful still like, Oh yeah. Like main, maintaining the, the interactions with the multiple brands because they were only able to do small amounts. So it's like all these different interactions, um, that I still have to keep up now, um, to, deliver, deliver the deliverables at the tail end, um, and interacting with the two film guys and interacting with Nathan as a fellow athlete and Alden and the support capacity. It was a lot to produce this trip, both on a film level and on just like being sort of the lead athlete, um, the, the trip leader. Um, but when I reflect on it, like, was it significantly easier to just go solo and do it myself? Like, yes. Um, cause I can compare those side by side since I went down and attempted it solo, but was it worth it to take the extra burden on myself to make it about more than myself? Absolutely. And the film hasn't even come out yet. And the experience like already in, in my estimation, the, the emotional value it had to, to Nathan, um, the value it had to Alden getting to summit and getting to be in the supportive role and see the whole thing unfold for the film guys to get out there and have a, a crack at caption. Cause they hadn't quite done, neither of them had done this style of film before. 
So there's a little bit of a gamble involved on my end and, and on their end, um, just kind of believing that we could all pull this off, even though there were variables and experiments that we hadn't run before. Um, so like even just that experience for everyone involved was just phenomenal. Um, and I think the film based on everything that happened and, uh, the, the drama and the, uh, suspense that happened in the middle, um, a lot of unsureness. I think that, uh, yeah, the film at the tail end is going to be one that's going to be worth watching as well. Yeah. Um, we're going to have you back on after the film kind of comes out to talk about like the actual attempt itself. Um, but I do kind of want to talk a bit more about the lead up to that. Uh, Nathan Longhurst is someone we've talked about on the show, uh, a few times before, but, uh, I'm wondering if you can kind of, kind of give me a, a, a short biography of him. Cause for those that don't know, he's like, I feel like he's just a mountain like crusher. Oh yeah. He, he's a, a, a mountain crusher, a mountain lover. He does it. He does it for the love of it. Like you can't even get him to repost something on Instagram. Like he has no interest in doing it for the secondary benefits. He like wants to do it cause he wants to do it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, another you know, case in point is he finished this massive mountain project, which I'll, I'll tell in this 30,000 foot biography flyover of him. He literally finished this like 138 day mountain endeavor and had like one day back in civilization and then left on a different mountain trip with other friends. Cause he's like, well, I'd just rather be in the mountains. <laughs> um, so anyways, Nathan Longhurst, um, my first interaction with him, actually, it's kind of cool. He reached out to me to beat my Rainier infinity loop record. So this 21 year old reaches out to me. This is, uh, in 2021 prior to me attempting the Bulgers in June, uh, of that year. And so I get this message from this kid who's like, I want to beat your Rainier infinity loop record. Will you help me? Um, and it's like, okay, so you realize that's my record and you're wanting right. me to help you beat it. But I, I love doing that. And I put myself out there as loving to do that. So it's, it was warranted. Um, but it is always funny, it, funny and fun to get that message. Like, will you help me beat your record? Um, and so like we go through his plan and, and talk it through and it's like, all right, like what's your resume? What's your background? What says that you should be able to do this? And he has, just has this massive, you know, for a 21 year old, this massive resume of soloing experiences and glacier experiences and ultra running and uh, hard rock climbing and, uh, just wild, like wild, the capacity he had, he'd skied epic lines already and climbs 513. Um, so it's just like in this high level athlete in a lot of different domains, it's just like, wow. Um, okay. You, this is definitely in your wheelhouse. This is definitely possible. It's, it's a big experiment cause you've never done anything quite this big, um, before, but I think it's possible for you. And then we kind of went through the, the plan and itinerary of what sort of time he would be aiming at and, and what that would look like, where he would arrive. So it's like, yeah, dude, you should go for this. You should absolutely try to best this record. And uh, maybe you can even be the first person to take it sub 48 hours. Nobody's broken two days yet. Um, and that was something even in my my trip report, I said, because I, I did, as some people remember, like I did the Rainier Infinity Loop 10 days after I did the Cascade Trifecta um, because Rainier was this big question mark in my head. And as soon as I succeeded at summiting Rainier, I just kind of had that overwhelming, like, I'm scared of the Rainier Infinity Loop but I'm excited by it, which means I have to do it. But my legs were not anywhere near a hundred percent being 10 days off of climbing three mountains in 24 hours. Um, and so I, even in my trip report, I was like sub 48 is absolutely possible. Um, like I have the splits sitting in a notebook that even for me, I think are possible. So somebody's going to do this. Um, so I was like, yeah, man, you should, you should try to be the person that takes this sub 48 hours. Like that'd be a really cool achievement for someone who's your age. Um, especially since you're already clearly interested in this stuff, which is the main thing, right? Do you love it? And so he re he's then like, well, what are you getting up to? And I'm like, well, I'm going to do this project, the climb the Bulgers list in a single season, see if I can do it in my school summer and, and set a, a rad FKT for it. Um, he's like, dude, that's amazing. Can I join you on the first day? Cause it sounds like perfect training to beat your record. You know, again, like, all right, now I'm really helping you beat my record. Um, so he comes out and you know, it's kind of a low key day, just lots of miles, like a 40 mile opening day um, with four peaks, but nothing super technical, nothing super committing. So kind of like, you know, if he gets tired or he can't perform or whatever, he could just turn around and, and go back and there's no risk. 
we hit it off. We had this great, amazing first day with some bad weather um, and had to take some interesting different routes because of things not working the way we thought they would. I was just blown away at this kid's capacity for navigation in the mountains and his sense of calm and sense of place. And it was just like, man, this, this, this is more like a 31 year old rather than a 21 year old. And so just hit it off and built a deep trust very quickly. And, you know, he just kept coming out and climbing different days. Well, fast forward through this Bulger's project, he climbs 65 of the peaks with me and then climbs the rest on his own and becomes the second person to ever finish the list in a season. Um, he'd skied some peaks earlier that year as well. So his total time was 94 days. So he would have bested the 410 day record by like 300 days if he, if I hadn't existed. So it's like, that doesn't get shouted out enough that he did this really cool thing being, being that person. But also he became the youngest finisher to ever climb all of those peaks, the hundred tallest peaks of Washington, um, which is kind of cool. It was really like, uh, even at that moment, I was like, this is one of my favorite unknown outcomes like that I could have never predicted of choosing to attempt this record. So anyways, one of the big breakthroughs he had was he's during, during the middle of this thing, when we'd like gone huge, you know, multi-peak days, just back to back to back to back, just slamming in all this technical terrain and all of this mileage. And he's like, I had no clue my body could do this. And so it was cool. The very next year as a 22 year old, he goes out and climbs the SPS list, which is 247 of the most iconic and key peaks of the entire Sierra range. And nobody had ever even come close to climbing it in a season. It was like five and a half years or something. And so he climbs it front to back, skiing a lot of classic ski descents on the front and very aesthetic style. Um, ski or yeah, skiing a bunch of classic descents and then soloing a bunch of classic rock climbs instead of just taking the easy walk up and just did this really aesthetic uh, Sierra experience, knocking out these 247 peaks. And this is the one I was talking about where he literally finishes up this 138 day push through the Sierra and takes like one or two days back in civilization and then right back up into the mountains for a full week with friends. Um, and you know, that, that sums up his, his, uh, demeanor and personality and approach to the mountains. It's like the, the best thing about the mountains is being in the mountains for Nathan Longhurst. And yeah, so he did that. He uh, he actually intends to go back this year because he still never has attempted because uh, he got so stuck doing the boulders with me. He still has never attempted the Rainier Infinity Loop yet. So that is on his docket for for this year. Definitely something for people to watch. You know, he does occasionally post on his Instagram. You can find him on there. I think it's Nathan three five eight. So if people want to yeah. tune in and follow him, like he's definitely like you're going to get a good ten years of rad stories out of this guy. Uh, it's worth just hit, hitting the follow button for him. Um, yeah, so he's going to attempt the, the Rainier Infinity Loop, which will kind of be a cool, like, full circle of our relationship and friendship to see him go and, and crush that. Um, and yeah, probably we'll end up sharing more of these volcanic, uh, Infinity Loops as well, these volcanic seven summits. So, yeah. This is kind of a funny anecdote that I'm sure he won't mind me telling, but I tried to have him on, uh, this podcast and I was going back and forth with him over email. And like, it was like super close to the time we were supposed to record. And he like emailed me at like midnight one night when I was asleep. And I woke up to this email and it's just like, Hey man, like I'm currently like, I have spotty cell service. Like I'm on top of a mountain right now. Like maybe we could push back our recording time. Uh, and I was like, I figured that he would be taking some downtime after such an ambitious project like the SPS list, but evidently that dude needs to be at high altitudes in the mountains all the time <laughs> yep no he's he is an absolute machine an absolute like it's a full passion thing like it's all love it's all passion that drives him to be out there um yeah no no i know i love the kid he's he's a super solid mountain partner like the lead up can be a little frustrating right like you said he'll he'll like change plans or He'll not respond, not communicate, um, just disappear. Like, even though you got a big project coming up and you need to sort out some details, like he'll just disappear for a week. Um, it's like frustrating to deal with on the front end, but once you're out there with him, it's like, you couldn't ask for a more solid human being, um, yeah. to be in the middle of whatever, whatever happens, anything that happens, um, absolute trust in his capacity. So, yeah someone that is like entirely present in what they're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
before we get into um, your actual attempt, which I think will be the part two of this conversation, um, is there anything else we need to cover to kind of set that scene up? What would we want to cover? We talked about the Rainier Infinity Loop, talked about Nathan, set some context there, talked about the Seven Summits. Um, no, I think, we're, I think we're in a pretty good place there. Yeah, and how is the, the, the film going? Kevin's got it laid out in a, like all of the scenes are laid across a timeline. Um, he's really excited about it. He's just got to start the process of like cutting it into a clean short film. He, he estimates it's probably going to be a film somewhere between 25 minutes and 45 minutes. Um, yeah. That's so, right in the sweet spot. It's right. Yep. Right in the sweet spot. Is he, is he feeding you little snippets here and there? He, he hasn't sent any yet. He's just released the finished trip photos. So the photos just came out. He's kind of been working right obviously because he took this uh, trip kind of unpaid. He kind of worked like back to back paid jobs since we came back or back to back to back to back. Um, and so he just now like got the, the uh, picks out and then he's going to start feeding us some like short bits that will start popping up on my Instagram and Nathan's Instagram. Um to start getting little little snippets of the story out there, um, which I, yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty cool story. We uh, it was a full gamut of human emotion packed into a twenty four hour push. Um, the hate became an issue. The uh, you know part partner differences um, became an issue. Like a lot of things unfolded in in those uh, forty miles at above 14,000 feet the whole time, as you would expect. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to, to start putting some of that out there. It's been, I've been at a loss for words. I feel like I'm, I've stalled out on my, my Instagram where like, I was like, man, like what, what, what do I even say? Like, how do I, how do I put this out there? Um, so yeah, no, it's been, it's been interesting. I'm excited for some of those video bits to come out. Cause I think that'll help me articulate. Yeah. Um, with the proper proper video to, to back it up. Yeah. Sounds like it's going to be a summer blockbuster. <laughs> it should be pretty good. It should be pretty good. I'm, I'm excited to put it out in the world when it, when it comes out. I think it'll, it'll be a lot more than just a like, hey, look, a couple of cool di- dudes did a cool thing in the mountains. I think, I think there'll be some parts that resonate on, on a very human level at multiple levels, um, which for me, it's like, I don't, I wouldn't care to put out something unless it actually like had some real relevance to how we like live our lives and interact with each other and, and make our decisions. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really happy. Even though a lot of the, the pain and suffering was held on my end, I'm really happy that we got to face that and that there was a film crew along to capture and convey that story. Well, I'm really excited to have you back on to talk about it once it drops. I am too. I am too. It, I'm struggling to not not talk too much right now. <laughs> no, we'll save it. We'll save it. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Have a good one, Matt. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.